0: Section twenty three of Tin Horns and Calico by Henry Christman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter twenty three: Deep in the Land Anti Rent Blood flows down the years and through the land. Mixing with the blood of landlords, it has helped build great American fortunes. Sons have sat upon the United States Supreme Court bench and in paneled Wall Street law offices. Some have turned the rich land of the New West to man's use, and played important parts in the politics and culture of the country. In Michigan, Illinois, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Kansas, Iowa, California, anti-rent blood is deep in the land during their lifetime the anti-renters did more than arrest the spread of despotic medieval landlordism they helped too to save the frontier from speculators and unscrupulous capitalists it was john slingerland the anti-rent congressman who introduced the first federal homestead act early in eighteen forty eight pointing out the basic interdependence of all the reform movements An effectual bar to the progress of slavery, he said, will be found in the creation of small homesteads sufficient for the maintenance of single families and requiring not a host of slaves or laborers to cultivate. Slave labor is profitable only when it is extensively employed. Slingerland's homestead bill failed, but the issue kept national politics in turmoil for another 14 years, the fight to end land speculation and dispose of the public lands to citizens who intended to settle on them was taken up by horace greeley who was elected to the house of representatives in the fall of eighteen forty eight and william h seward who went to the senate in eighteen forty nine the two old friends also spoke frequently from the floor of congress on the larger aspects of land reform and kept in mind the possibilities of a new party in 1850 the democratic review of new york observed it is idle to disguise the fact that anti-rentism is but another of the isms which mr senator seward and his associates are endeavoring to engraft as an element into the constitution of a new northern and sectional party embracing all isms the entire anti-rent vote is literally at the command of the free soil interests how long is a lawless political organization in a few counties to be used by corrupt politicians as a tool and instrument of forwarding the fell design of abolitionism greeley's newspaper had gone far toward overcoming the opposition of northern industrialists who fearing that free soil would give labor a lever for higher wages instinctively joined forces with southern democrats who realized that small independent homesteads would undermine the institution of slavery. The West, Greeley told his readers, was the predestined market. The faster the West can be settled and cultivated, the more independent and thrifty its settlers, the greater must be the demand for the products and merchandise of the seaboard states. A new state in the West implies new warehouses in and near Lower Broadway, new streets and blocks uptown new furnaces in pennsylvania new factories in new england a new cabin on the prairies predicts and insures more work for carmen and stevedores in new york eager industrial expansionists found his words a convincing argument for homesteads the new democratic spirit generated in the anti-rent struggle was bound to be felt far from the manor towns of new york state as more and more of the discouraged radicals moved to the Midwest, hoping to find the newer social structure less fettered by tradition and conservatism. Albany, Rensselaer, Schoharie, Delaware, and Otsego County names began to dot the West, though few of the emigrants found the heavenly destiny of which they had dreamed. Capitalists, politicians, congressmen, judges, and cabinet members had been there before them, like hawks preying on the land, and speculators were demanding six dollars an acre for farms that had cost them next to nothing. Among those who found themselves stepping from one inequity to another were such anti-rent leaders as Alvin Beauvais, Edward O'Connor, William Brisbane, and Amos Loper. Not long after Beauvais and Devere made their last speaking tour of the Helderbergs in 1846, beauvais abandoned teaching for the bar and married caroline elizabeth the daughter of his old friend and fellow reformer ransom smith in his frequent visits to greeley's tribune office beauvais had been enthralled by the perfect western paradise described in letters from warren chase leader of the fourierist phalanx established in eighteen forty four at ripon wisconsin on October fifth, 1850, Beauvais arrived at Ripon to look for a home, after tramping seventy-five miles from Milwaukee, where he had left his family. He found Amos Loper, an anti-renter from Blenheim Hill, already settled on a fertile farm three miles north of the little settlement, having left the starved soil of Schoharie County in 1847. William Brisbane and his family had been farming for a year at Alto, twelve miles to the south. Other families from anti-rent counties were clearing new farms in the Fond du Lac region. Beauvais liked the vigorous, idealistic frontier spirit of Ripon. He became the settlement's first lawyer, and within a year was laying out Beauvais's addition to the city of Ripon on property purchased from the Phalanx, which was being dissolved. Here, in this young community, he satisfied ambitions that never could have been fulfilled by anti-rent barnstorming or agrarian agitation at Croton Hall and on street corners. He became a social and political force, and later helped found Ripon College to meet the educational needs of the frontier. Meanwhile, anti-rent, free soil, and anti-slavery agitation had done much to prepare the way for political realignment under a new party banner the only spark lacking to light the fire was an issue upon which all the reform factions could unite this issue was provided by the kansas-nebraska bill which would give the two territories the right to establish slavery at the time of organizing local government the bill was offered in congress by stephen a douglas on january twenty-third eighteen fifty four and little opposition was expected before the end of the month while the bill was still in the senate alvin beauvais took the first definite step toward establishing that new political party which he and DeVere and evans had discussed in williamsburg in eighteen forty four the one which was to bear the name first used by thomas jefferson first he called on his ripon neighbor jedediah bowen who had been a lifelong democrat but hated slavery and was ready to forsake the party that had become its apologist a few evenings later in early february beauvais and bowen rode out to amos loper's place and got his pledge of full support in crystallizing the anti-slavery sentiment in ripon together the three men signed a call for a meeting of all liberty-loving people of whatever party on march first eighteen fifty four two days before the meeting beauvais wrote urgently to greeley advocate calling together in every church and schoolhouse in the free states all the opponents of the kansas nebraska bill no matter what their party affiliations urge them to forget previous political names and organizations and to band together under the name i suggested to you in eighteen fifty two republican that first day of march in eighteen fifty four the little congregational church of ripon was filled with persons of both sexes from the town and surrounding country william brisbane was probably unable to make the twelve-mile trip in the dead of winter for his name does not appear in the records and he remained a democrat as alvin beauvais walked into the church his thoughts must have gone back to those turbulent summers ten years before when cheers echoed through the helderbergs as he assured the anti-rent farmers that they would yet redeem the condition of labor and a new progressive party would rise to power on a great fundamental truth man's right to the soil now he told his wisconsin neighbors that the time had come the sentiment of the meeting was polled and it was agreed that if the kansas-nebraska bill passed a second meeting would be called to cut old affiliations and bring forth the new party on march twentieth seventeen days after the senate had approved the bill eager citizens of ripon responded to a new call signed by Beauvais, loper and about fifty others and met in a little white schoolhouse in ripon for a general uprising of the north we went into the little meeting whigs free soilers and democrats Bove reported we came out republicans here in this frontier settlement men who had once shaped local resistance to local oppression now shaped national political destiny whigs and free soilers dissolved their local party organizations and a committee of five was selected to organize the republican party among them were the two former anti renters beauvais and loper one a whig the other a free soiler and jedediah bowen the democrat the house of representatives passed the bill on may twenty sixth eighteen fifty four and it went immediately to president franklin pierce for signature the next morning about thirty members of the house met in washington discussed the situation and decided in favor of the new republican party as it rocketed to power many persons claimed the distinction of fathering the new party and the little Ripon meeting was dismissed as accidental beauvais protested against attempts to discredit the ripon founders this was no blind unconscious movement of which the human family makes so many we did not build better than we knew as some have supposed we built precisely as we knew the actors in this remote little eddy of politics thought at the time that they were making a bit of history by that solitary tallow candle in the little white schoolhouse on the prairie in new york city horace greeley failed to respond as wholeheartedly as beauvais had hoped and much nagging was needed before he finally committed the tribune to the republican party in june eighteen fifty four even then he was not sure and expressed his misgivings in a letter to beauvais i faintly hope the time has come which daniel webster predicted when he said i think there will be a north but i am a beaten broken-down used-up politician and have the soreness of defeat in my bones. However, I am ready to follow any lead that promises to hasten the day of northern emancipation. Your plan is all right if the people are right for it. I fear they, too, generally wish that they had a good plantation and Negroes in Alabama or even Kansas. However, we will try to do what we can. But remember that editors can only follow where the people's heart is already prepared to go with them. They can direct and animate a healthy indignation, but not create a soul beneath the ribs of death. But the people's conscience had already been stirred, and in most places where republicanism took hold, man's right to the soil was proclaimed. As enthusiasm for the new party surged across the nation, New York State's obstinate anti-renters, who had refused to surrender to political intriguers, saw clearly where their interests lay the democrats had so flouted democracy that the jeffersons and the jacksons who gave it life and living faith should lie uneasy in their graves it was a hard decision for many farmers who had grown up in the traditions of the democratic party but eventually in a resolution adopted at a state convention in albany in eighteen sixty six the tenant farmers turned their backs upon the past friends of liberty and progress The great republican party of the nation we have no hope or expectation of relief from the democratic party we expect their hostility to the last and therefore leave that party to its fate and we turn to you you who have so steadily and persistently stood up for the cause of universal emancipation and for right in the months preceding the presidential campaign of eighteen sixty the Democrats failed in their last chance to rob the new party of its working-class appeal. Andrew Johnson, an agrarian Democrat, did his best to hold back the Republican tidal wave by introducing a compromise homestead bill. Thomas Devere put out a handbill on January first, 1860, pointing to the danger ahead if the bill failed. Unlike most reformers of the day, he refused to countenance the new party it is because the democratic party of the present day have turned their backs upon the great principle of democracy that they find themselves in their present position for this is the true source of the preponderance of the republican power in the northern states but the retribution may still be averted by doing justice even now at the eleventh hour this can be done by the democratic party in the senate taking up the measure and passing it through by a vote that will show they are in earnest the passage of this law would be at once just and a final compromise of the existing difficulties. With the unchained enthusiasm of the Northern States for free homes the vessel of State would rapidly swing round to her old moorings. Still hoping that the Democratic Party would justify its name, Devere included in the handbill a letter in his most resounding style, which he had written to Senator James Shields of Illinois eight years before, when an earlier homestead bill was pending. It read in part, "'Do as you please, do all of you as you please. I will not go down on my knees to you. I will not kiss the dust of your feet and implore you to save at once this republic from ruin and your names from eternal reproach. But I will tell you when the wail of suffering and the howl of strife shall hereafter arise in the land,' for strife, too, will start up before this drama is ended. There will be names uttered with a hissing curse, the names of those men who could have averted the destruction, but would not. In a letter to Andrew Johnson, Devere insisted that the Democrats would be punished for opposing free homesteads. Most of the land reformers were old-line Jeffersonian Democrats. But the Republican Party, he said, had by deception drawn away nineteen-twentieths of our men there was still time to enlist the party in the free land movement the free soilers and their successors the republicans de vere declared were and are impostors if the democrats were indeed democrats they could turn the tide against them john Cummerford made a similar appraisal of the situation in a letter to johnson i know that the republicans attribute their success to other issues than the advocacy of the distribution of land among the people but i am satisfied that they are mistaken thomas de vere's prophecy soon came true as the nation poised on the brink of civil war president james buchanan vetoed johnson's homestead act on the ground that it would go far to demoralize the people and introduce among us those pernicious social theories which have proved so disastrous in other countries when horace greeley personally appealed to de vere to help elect abraham lincoln the compromise candidate for the presidency de vere printed an abusive handbill castigating greeley for having used lincoln to push aside william seward a far abler man whom you have so long personally and bitterly opposed de vere clung to his opposition even after lincoln made seward his secretary of state and gave him unusual leeway the former governor continued to feel himself a man of destiny and was to distinguish himself by many brilliant acts of statesmanship including the purchase of alaska from russia but de vere could never forgive lincoln Alvin Bovey, on the other hand, thought Lincoln the wisest possible choice. He wrote to Greeley on June seventeenth, 1860. It seems to be the style now to discuss the sayings and doings of Horace Greeley. An obscure and humble individual away off in Wisconsin wishes to say this in relation to the prevailing subject. You did a splendid thing at Chicago and if it was through your sole efforts that william h seward was defeated so much more glory and honor to you it saved the republican party and it saved the country from four years more of the worst rule that any civilized country ever saw next to simon cameron i think lincoln's nomination was the strongest and including cameron's i believe it was the best that could be made that was my opinion for a year prior to the convention i expressed it to you last winter at madison i held it down to the day of nomination and i hold it still i thank you and i thank god that governor seward was not nominated and yet i would have elected him and would gladly to-day if i had the power but now when we have arrived at the point where success is possible for us to throw away our chances for the love or admiration of any man what madness of treason could equal it De Vere would not have supported any Republican candidate, because he was convinced that the new party, reaching down to the masses with the vote-yourself-a-farm slogan of the reformers, was actually the party of conservatism. Industrial slavery was already supplanting agricultural slavery. De Vere was sure that, despite its working-class roots, this new party was no triumph of the people, but a triumph for northern business enterprise— they had grasped at land agitation merely to aid free enterprise and increase dividends. Horace Greeley did not answer Devere's handbill until after Lincoln had been elected. New York, November twenty-sixth, eighteen sixty. Mister T. A. Devere, the only favor I shall ever ask of you, and I never asked one before, is this: that you procure and read Benedict Arnold's letter to his betrayed countrymen after he escaped from West Point to the British camp, and then take a steady look at your own face in the mirror. I loathe you too much for your treason to the rights of man to speak of you, but for what you have said or may say about me I care nothing. I remain glad that you have ceased personally to infest me. Horace Greeley Thomas Devere's reply was equally incisive. Greeley, are you the rights of man?' are the political knaves associated with you the patriots of the last century it is long since i knew your vices but i never thought you were such an able and malignant scoundrel de vere carried his mistrust of republicanism to its logical conclusion of opposition to the civil war when the slaves were freed he wrote bitterly that negro emancipation had been carried triumphantly through ponds of blood and over fields of dead bodies and broken hearts that the negro is free free to starve if the civil war had been a basic reform a recognition of an evil the negro would have been given a patch of land upon which to sustain himself instead he was free to join the vast gang of wage slaves indirect slavery nominally the least odious practically the worst of its forms Devere vere saw the whole conflict as only another step toward the enslavement of america by monopolists and stock-gamblers ironically it was through the republican party that thomas de vere's twenty-year agitation for free farms was rewarded lincoln's signature to the homestead act in eighteen sixty-two just twenty years after de vere's pact with the anti-renters started a wave of westward migration that saw two million five hundred thousand acres settled within two years and fifty million acres within twenty years many of the people who had done the most for free farms were already dead before their dream was realized lawrence van dusen the george washington of anti-rent died in eighteen fifty two after the free soil debacle of eighteen forty eight George Henry Evans went back to his farm in Granville to work the land, publish intermittent editions of Young America, and agitate for free homesteads. That pure hearted man, wrote Thomas DeVere, had been literally starved back to his mortgaged spot in New Jersey, where, instead of cultivating the stony public mind, George went to cultivate melons. Some of the first money he made was used to pay the mortgage Horace Greeley held on the farm heart soul and voice of the land reform movement george evans died in february eighteen fifty six from an illness brought on by exposure to cold and wet in eighteen seventy four a group of reverent land reformers thomas Devere, louis masquerier and john Cummerford, went to pay homage to the man who had done so much for the cause they found his grave on the evans farm by a little worn path leading to a tall marble slab headstone amidst a wild growth of herbage while the moaning breeze waved the branches of the overhanging trees like a banner as if still inviting the landless and the pauperized masses to strike for perpetual and not a mere transient share in the soil john slingerland who had dared the wrath of the whigs with a homestead measure in eighteen forty eight died a few months before Lincoln signed the bill, of which his had been the forerunner. In the last few years of his life, he had emerged from political eclipse to serve as a Republican Assemblyman. Slingerland's political godfather, Ira Harris, was elected to the United States Senate on his return from his trip to Europe with Stephen Van Rensselaer. His candidacy was successful largely because Thurlow Weed used him to defeat Horace Greeley, who no longer regarded Weed as such a pure and able man. While in Washington, according to one commentator, Harris was distinguished chiefly for his persistency in pressing candidates for office. "'I never think of going to sleep,' Abraham Lincoln once said dryly, "'without first looking under my bed to see if Judge Harris is not there wanting something for somebody.'" Ira Harris wanted to forget his anti-rent past, In family-approved biographical articles and memorials published after his death in 1875, the anti-rent pages are blank. One of the youngest of the anti-rent heroes, Edward O'Connor, died of a fever on May 4, 1863, in Forestville, Michigan, hailed as a martyr and champion of the Free Soil Party. He left one son. His wife, Janet, had died ten years before, her health destroyed by the anxieties of those dreadful months when he awaited the gallows after her death he had turned to the wilds of michigan leaving the child behind with relatives in the Plattekill valley the boy grew to manhood and married a daughter of henry booton one of delaware county's first anti-renters and a member of the booton-bouton family moses earle an old man even in the heyday of anti-rentism continued to live on Dingle Hill after his release from prison. He had acquired such a habit of building walls at Danamora that he was unable to stop afterward. His steers and stone-boat became as familiar to his neighbors in the hills as afternoon cloud-shadows and storm-sheets. During the winter evenings he sat alone before the big fire, except for his dog Bruce and his cats, for he outlived Sarah by many years. In 1863, there where Osmond Steele had died eighteen years earlier, Moses Earl passed away, with an old red flannel nightcap on his head. He was buried beside his father, in the field they had cleared near Trimperskill. Later his bones were moved, with those of the other earls, to a common grave in Andes, marked by a stone that bears only the name of his father, and the record of his father's service in the Revolution. All that remains of Moses Earle is the briar-grown, tumbled foundations of his house, and most of the stone walls that still rib Dingle Hill. William Brisbane, drawn into the anti-rent agitation by a strong sense of justice, lived a long, useful life. After leaving Dingle Hill in 1849, he farmed for ten years in Fond du Lac County, Wisconsin, a neighbor of Alvin Bove and Amos Loper and then in 1859 moved westward to wilton waseca county minnesota where he purchased 250 acres of prairie and timber driving a herd of forty-two cattle over the westward trail was a struggle with april mud and so slow was the progress that the brisbanes sometimes camped two nights within sight of the same farm the first year in frontier wilton brisbane said tried men's stomachs as well as their souls but he prospered grew in influence and served two terms in the minnesota legislature as an independent democrat on july twenty fifth eighteen ninety at the age of seventy nine he died in the house he and his wife had built on arriving in wilton eleven of his twelve children were still alive at the time of his death and he left eighty head of cattle thirteen horses large barns two granaries and two houses In reporting on his death, the Waseca Herald observed, Owing to natural sympathies for the poor and unfortunate, he took an active and prominent part in the anti-rent troubles. In politics and religion, he was, without acknowledging it, a liberal in thought and sentiment. He was a rough diamond, somewhat warped and ill-shaped by surrounding circumstances and early habits, but still a diamond of no mean value. His ambition was great. His mind never ceased to work upon the problems of life, and he loved to study and discuss the principles of government. No American ever had a greater love for our American institutions than he. While some of his ideas were crude, owing to a want of early education, he was nevertheless honest in entertaining them, and fearless in giving them expression. He was a good neighbor, and though a man of strong passions, he could easily forgive the editor could have added that brisbane never relaxed his fight against the enemies of equal rights those men as brisbane said whose only god is wealth whose greatest study is how they can cheat and rob their fellow men of the fruits of their labor brisbane's former neighbor alvin earl beauvais was elected twice to the wisconsin legislature as a republican after serving in the civil war as a major and as provost marshal of norfolk and portsmouth virginia he returned to ripon where he remained for many years a political force after eighteen eighty he spent most of his time developing new communities along the north dakota frontier and returned to ripon only at rare intervals there are a few who still remember him a tall spare figure with stooping shoulders long legs and flowing beard walking with long steps and vigorous stride toward the end of the century beauvais returned to new york a stately dignified old gentleman and lived for several years in a quiet corner of brooklyn new york had changed and his old fellow radicals were dead george evans thomas Devere, horace greeley but he had many rich memories in nineteen o one in search of health beauvais crossed the continent to california and on january twenty ninth, nineteen oh three he died in Santa Monica at the age of eighty five. Thomas Ange DeVere never laid down the crusader's sword until death took it from him. After leaving the anti rent movement in eighteen forty six, he built up a small fortune by developing the East River waterfront and accumulating four hundred building lots in Williamsburg, and spent much of it endowing radical papers in eighteen seventy six he proposed that the irish reformers in america depute thither to ireland a few eloquent men like wendell phillips to educate the people in knowledge of their rights and prepare them for acting the part of men resolved to be free when the chosen hour shall come he wrote volunteering to be one of the mental skirmishers himself i am only approaching the old line of seventy years in the intermediate space of two or three years i expect to have a good deal of civil talk with the men whose crime blighted my childhood with poverty and sent me to explore other regions for the means of life which they have feloniously taken away when i look back at what i have acted and endured through the long years and through the crime of those right honourable felons i am doubly embraced to enter the field against them for a last encounter i am not alarmed about the progress of years i am yet eligible for the ranks of war he has no personal ambition commented patrick ford editor of the irish world save that of doing good his proposition to relinquish ease and home comfort and go forth to strike we consider magnanimous and plucky the plan to send agitators to ireland failed but ford asked Devere to join the staff of his paper once more the wiry little man wrote tirelessly on his old theme of land reform advocating the allotment of forty acres of land to each person as a bulwark against industrial wage enslavement his most effective work was an editorial campaign that same year against the judicial murders as he called them in the molly Maguire riots in the pennsylvania coal fields the new york times comment that the mine agitators looked fit subjects for the gallows and were dangerous and brutal-looking evoked de vere's full indignation he accused the coal thieves and their friends the newspapers and politicians of both parties of wanting big dividends for themselves and helpless hopeless slavery for the workers the coal-miner working in constrained and unnatural position begrimed with dirt was in all respects a blacker and less protected slave than the negro ever was," he insisted. De Vere gave the miners much the same advice he had given the Rensselaerwick tenants in 1842. You are equal citizens. Be armed. Prepare resolutely for the next election. Prepare beforehand and proclaim a general strike on the week-ending election day. Hope for the best, but be prepared for the worst." the inhuman and unjust men now riding over you will make desperate efforts to keep their seats they will stop at neither fraud nor force if serious trouble threatens them they can by one dash of their pens destroy the constitution by simply proclaiming martial law if that be done and the moment it is done accept the gage of battle march into the arsenals capture the gunrooms of the militia especially capture the ruffian newspaper offices and make their types tell truth for once in their lives take possession and let not a lie flash over the telegraph your enemies are thieves and thieves when justice overtakes them are mostly found to be cowards all this citizens is not a declaration of war it is simply a preparation for war and that has ever been one of the grand essentials toward preserving the peace on may twenty seventh eighteen eighty seven still battling for the common man against privilege and monopoly Devere died in brooklyn at the age of eighty-two what of big thunder in some ways the most remarkable of all the heroes of the down-rent struggle the country doctor who risked his life and fortunes for an abstract principle and had the courage and the audacity to go to the great daniel webster himself for a legal opinion on anti-rentism In 1880, at the age of seventy, Dr. Smith A. Boughton retired from the practice of medicine. Determined, he said, not to mix any more in the turmoils and busy scenes of life, but to settle down to domestic tranquillity so acceptable in old age. It was only a short stroll down the meadow to Pike's Pond, back of his home in Alps, and he walked there often, looking up at the wooded shoulder of Pike's Hill, and remembering the days long ago, when he had put on the flaming robes of big thunder, to rally his neighbors to strike for the green graves of their sires. Reflecting on those turbulent days, Dr. Boughton was satisfied that he had reasserted the Boughton proclivity for resisting tyranny. He observed that great good has risen from our struggle. The feudal landlords were stripped of their privilege, and now a man could sit under his own vine-and-fig tree of his own planting with no one to make him afraid of being disturbed or driven from the land no longer did the landlords hold exclusive right to industrial enterprise hydraulic plants were rising along many of the larger streams that poured out of the manor counties and the doctor was gratified to see them doing immense business when they took the old doctor's body down the road to his last home in sand lake cemetery they raised a stone at his head dr s a boughton born september first eighteen ten died november fourteenth eighteen eighty eight aged seventy eight no epitaph told his story but a reminder of the long warfare was close by in the next plot an already well settled monument marked the grave of willard griggs the turncoat anti-renter who had died trying to evict william whitbeck it was walter church the farmers of alps said who had paid the stone-cutter to chisel his tribute erected by a friend to the memory of willard griggs who was shot in fearless discharge of his duty as deputy sheriff in executing process and died august second eighteen sixty nine aged fifty eight The stone over Dr. Boughton's grave marks the date of his death, but his memory still lives in the hill country. About two years ago, Dr. Boughton's grandson was driving on a back road above Alps, following the trails his grandfather had taken in his buggy and on horseback. He stopped a bent and weathered man to ask directions, and the old farmer's eyes, peering sharply from under grizzled brows, observed the questioner's angular frame his blue eyes and white hair what's your name bouton answered the younger man you're doc bouton's grandson the old man's face was bright and warm with recognition dr smith a bouton had from life the fruit he asked i have found the old maxim true he wrote shortly before his death that the man who attempts to overthrow an existing wrong or revolutionize a principle of government that is tyrannical, must not expect to reap any reward, only in conscience and the satisfaction of knowing that his individual efforts bring a benefit to thousands. In this I am fully rewarded. End of Section twenty three. Recording by Maria Casper.